brought to you by Penguin. I remember I ended up in a dress on the front of The Guardian. They thought it was so hilarious that I'd have a go. Welcome to the Penguin Podcast, Best Branded Podcast Winner at the British Podcast Awards 2020. This is the place where writers and artists choose a series of objects that have inspired their work, and we get to see a little of what makes them tick creatively. My name is Nihal Arthanaika, speaking to you, as most people are now, working from home. So I've um, locked, in a very humane way, our 19-week-old puppy, in a little crate where she's curled up asleep so I can do this. My guest today has written eight best-selling novels, including High Fidelity and About a Boy and works of non-fiction, including his memoir, of course, Fever Pitch. Now, six of his books have been adapted for film, TV and theatre, starring the likes of John Cusack, Hugh Grant and Colin Firth. His latest novel, Just Like You, is the story of an unlikely romance between Lucy, a 41-year-old schoolteacher, and Joseph, a 22-year-old part-time butcher who still lives with his mum. Here to tell us more about that, and lots of other things, of course, is Nick Hornby. Hi, Nick. Hi, how are you? I'm good, I'm good, good. I'm good. Good to speak to you, Nick. And to you. Um, You've been um, very kind in choosing a handful of objects that inspire your work, including a book that changed your life, which mm. I'm uh, obviously very desperate to hear all about. But before <laughs> we get to those, um, just like you, okay, I mean, this this relationship between a, that's an almost middle-aged woman and a, a young single black guy, both mm-hmm. written in the first person, um, why? Why did you pick that age, that that racial difference? When I was thinking about the book, it was post-referendum and the country seemed, as it still does really, hopelessly, hopelessly divided. And I started to think about ways in which we connect that is not straightforwardly through our politics or our class or our race or our, our education. You know, I wanted to explore whether it was possible for people to find points of connection. You know, I, I knew in advance that um, I wanted my couple to leap over every hurdle that was placed in their path. So this was problem solving, was it? Well, that was one of the elements of it. I mean, there was also a genuine curiosity from my point of view. When I talked to people about their relationships... They tell me what they look for in a person or what they value in the person that they have. And and I always want to interrogate that, you know, and they say, oh, it's important for me that I live with a reader, for example. I think, really? You know, once you've had two kids, does it really matter to you whether your partner's reading a book or not? Because <laughs> I don't, you know, my wife's a reader, but we don't talk about reading an awful lot, not anymore, not with two teenage boys. Did you feel any trepidation in oh, inhabiting a a person of colour as a character? Yes. I mean, of course I was trepidatious. Did I know what I was doing? Um, Was there a good reason for me to do it? And, well, I I live in in Islington in North London. I live in a multicultural community. I did not grow up in a multicultural community, but my, my kids have. And I thought, unless... I write about everyone I see when I look out of my front door. I'm, I'm excluding half the people who live around me, and I didn't think I could do that. I was trepidatious when I wrote How to Be Good 
20 years ago or something in the first person because I wrote from the point of view of a woman. And I remember I ended up in a dress on the front of The Guardian. They thought it was so hilarious that I'd have a go. But back then I thought I can't exclude half the human race from my books. I'd, I'd already said what I had to say, I thought, about men of my age. And so if I'm going to be a writer and if I'm going to continue to be a writer, I don't think I can let any of those considerations put me off particularly. I think I have to write about everybody. Do you think your kids would be more comfortable writing about people from different cultures than you are or less? The reason I I guess asked more or less is because now amongst the younger generation, there's much more of a conversation about cultural appropriation and there's a whole new vernacular around what you can and can't do and what's acceptable and what isn't. So I just wonder whether they would they would well, venture into that territory. You know, it's interesting. The age they are now, they're sort of fearless. But I think, you know, in, in their 20s, then, then the, uh, the complications start, um, I guess. They have um, older cousins who... Um, you know, are very hot on cultural appropriation and all, all the all the issues that are going on there. And um, uh, I, I think they're not there yet where they feel particularly self-conscious about it. What did you need to find out about Joseph to create him in a way that you were comfortable with? I think that to create him... I had to convince myself that he was real and I had to be able to look around and see counterparts to him out in the world. Um, And then I had to talk to people once I'd written it um, and, and get them to tell me what wasn't working for them. That had to be on a cultural level and an ethnicity level as opposed to just a human level, an emotional level? Yeah, I don't worry so much about the emotional level. And if someone said to me, I don't think this happens to people in relationships, I might have um, I might have rejected that. But if someone from a BAME background said this doesn't sit right, then that, of course, I need to listen to. Did that happen? What happened uh, when I wrote the first draft is that a black woman who read it said, everyone talks too much about race. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, I know how that feels. I know how that feels. Yeah. And, of course, I was so anxious to address any objections that might come up that I was probably letting my characters talk in a way that wasn't completely natural. Yeah, Contrary to popular opinion, those of us who are from BAME communities are not obsessed with talking about it. Until we're doing the talking about largely the stuff that everyone else is talking about. Yes, and and I guess that was one of the themes of the book. Really, is that you know one of the themes of the book is the mess that um, liberals have got themselves into <laughs> over the last five to ten years um, about race, about Brexit, about everything, and. Um, and of course, that um, that mess, um, that anxiety, partly transferred to me in the writing of the book, and I had to relax about it and and um, and let me, let people make me relaxed about it. What is your first object, Nick? Well, where do you want to start? Let's start with the jigsaw. All right, the jigsaw. Well, I have a jigsaw behind me um, as we speak. This is about what you do during a working day, because I've discovered rather stupidly late in the day, 
that if you write a thousand words a day, which is good going, literally writing a thousand words would take you about half an hour. But I'm here for six hours. And so it's what you do in between each sentence or each half sentence. I think that's the difference between sanity and insanity. All writers have had days, I guess, where they've spent too long on YouTube or too long on words with friends or, 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 or something similar. And they completely kind of rot my mind and I get out of the zone. And I found that jigsaws I can plod on with. You don't get stuck. You just sort of do them very gently. And uh, it leaves space in my mind for where my writing should be. Uh, so they've become a fairly essential part, I would say, of my working day. How many pieces? A thousand, never less than a thousand. Oh, my gosh. So this is something that under certainly the first couple of months of lockdown, I think the whole country started discovering what an amazing, like Pac-Man, it eats up time, a jigsaw, yes. doesn't it? Yeah, I'm a, bit, I'm a bit of a connoisseur now, I think, um, on, on the jigsaw front. I know what's going to make a good jigsaw. Some of them are too easy, even at a thousand pieces, and some of them are just too hard. Do you sometimes try and be an anarchist and start from the middle and work your way out as opposed to doing the edges first? Oh, my God. <laughs> I mean, I say, I say, oh, my God. Because, no, it's not even blasphemy. It's like, oh, he just thought of that off the top of his head right now. It's like, I've never thought of that even. This is, uh, this is where I go wrong creatively, I think. <laughs> Because they are addictive. So are, they, are you not worried that they're taking creative energy away from? That's the thing. I don't think there's any creative energy in doing jigsaws. I don't want to be too pretentious about it. But there's a great writing metaphor about jigsaws, which is, you know, you're doing some thing which is just an awful patch of meadow or tree or something. And you think, oh, I'm never going to do this. And actually... You can do it as long as you look harder. So it's look harder, look harder, look harder. And and you think, okay, there's, there is a lesson in there. <laughs> it's something that, that we should all do with our writing is just look harder. Can I just go back actually to Lucy and Joseph? Because they have a, a trait in common that they both don't fit comfortably into any one class, position or opinion. And, and interestingly enough, everything's become so binary, hasn't it? Yeah, and, and that was the starting point for the book. How do we stop it? How do we stop the binary? Um, because we have to, I think, uh, if we're going to have any any future <laughs> as a race. Um, I mean, maybe binary conversations are useful for the time being, but if it continues in this way, where people just literally butt heads and they never see uh, anything apart from the surface contact with the other head... Uh, if you see what I mean, um, then I think we're in big trouble. So they're in a position where both of them, where they they think about what communities they belong to and what those communities are doing for them. And they can sort of wander around the outside. In writing this book, did it challenge any of your own, perhaps absolutes? Or do you consider yourself someone who isn't dogmatic in that way? I think that I'm full of doubt. Um, I'm doubtful about everything, and I think the older I've got, the more doubtful I become. I hope that's the right way to do things, actually, because, you know, I had a lot of certitude when I was a young man, you know, about 
all sorts of things, music, Mrs. Thatcher, football, everything. (laughs) As I've got older, I think, well, what do I know? The old cliche, I know what I like um, and I know what I think I believe in, but I'm not sure what good it does me necessarily. And if someone else believes something different, uh, I still have to find a way of connecting with them. Well, music is a great way to connect with people. um, And you've written a lot about music, of course, mm. High Fidelity being set in a record shop, um, which brings us on to your next object, which is lovely <laughs> and something that I have to explain. Actually, I've got, I'm actually looking at vinyl now where I am uh, at home. Tell me, you've got a copy of Rory Gallagher's Live in Europe LP. Why is this your second object? Why is this important to you, Nick? Well, it was probably about the third record I owned. Why I choose that one in particular is because Rory Gallagher was the first gig I ever saw as well. And there used to be this Radio 1 series in concert, which happened in a little theatre in Lower Regent Street. I think it was called the Paris Theatre. It probably was a 200-seater. And you could just get tickets by applying, and most of the time you didn't get them, but sometimes you did. So, you know, I was seeing one of my heroes in this 200-seater theatre about three rows from the back. And I was, I guess, 14, maybe 15. And at the end of it, I think that my life was changed in that um, I think that, you know, the people I went with, they thought it was great. But then they were talking about school the next day or Arsenal results the next week. And And I was thinking... I can't get over it. I, can, I cannot get over what I've just seen, the excitement and the volume. And that's happened to me a few times since. And, and what it told me was that I was never going to be able to do anything that wasn't a creative job. And that's a huge and, and sometimes quite depressing realisation. I mean, it was depressing when I wasn't earning any money at it because uh, it takes you away from your peers to a certain extent when you know that that's what you're committed to. But it was it was music and live music uh, that taught me that I would not be able to settle. So then what's the rush of being an author? It's not, it's not the rush. Um, it's the inability to do anything about it. I have a need to create and uh, that creativity had to find its way out somewhere. Um, And any form of art is incredibly important to me. You know, music, photography, movies, TV. um, I've always been sort of fairly obsessed with them. And so um, the rush is hard to find actually, um, because it, it it's a very painstaking job, isn't it? I mean, um, I, I, I'm never going to write a book like Jack Kerouac in the way that Jack Kerouac wrote On the Road. You know, it's, it's speed freak six weeks or two weeks or whatever it was where it just comes out of him. I, things don't just come out of me like that. Um, but, of course, there have been loads and loads of magic moments, I suppose, of... Um, meeting the the right people who've read the right book at the right time. That's a rush. So you're not trying to replicate that feeling of being at Rory Gallagher's gig or <laughs> watching Ian Wright score in the 94th minute uh, a winner. You're not trying to replicate that. No, I mean, I've had some readings that have been a bit of a rush when you walk out and you think, 
wow, I had no idea this many people were going to turn out. That, that, that can be exciting. And, yeah, that's as, as close as I'll get to feeling like Ian Wright, I suppose. But um, <laughs> uh, in, in the actual nuts and bolts of the work, no. And made into films? One thing about the films is that they take so long that more or less all excitement is gone by the time you sit in a cinema to watch them. I mean, you know, after about two years, somebody will send you a first draft and then they say, do you want us to keep sending you drafts? And the first time I, uh, it was happening, which was high fidelity, really, I said, yeah, yeah, sure. And then another draft comes and another. And I think, I, don't, I can't see the difference between this draft and the last draft. And then you know who's being cast. If you go to the shoot, that's unbelievably painstaking. It's, you know, they reckon two minutes a day is good. So if you go to a film set, what you're likely to see is somebody opening a door 15 times and closing it again. <laughs> and then you go and see a cut of the film and another cut of the film. I can remember Stephen Frears, who directed High Fidelity, saying to me, will you come and watch this uh, this cut that we've got? And I said, yeah, sure. I went down to see the cut. Wasn't that different from the other time I'd seen it? I didn't think. And then the next day, he said, after that screening yesterday, I had a revelation and I've completely recut it. And... Um, and it's a different film. I want you to come again today. So, like, literally the following day I went again, and it wasn't a different film. He cut a scene in a car out. Uh, <laughs> Did you have to act surprised? Did you have to act like, my God, Stephen, I, you I have think, completely flipped the script on this? I think Stephen being Stephen, he probably didn't turn up. The magic moments with films I think have been the films that I wrote of other people's stuff I wrote an education in Brooklyn and they're yes. the only time you ever see or ever hear the script performed in the order in which it's meant with the words as you wrote them as at the table reading when you get the cast together um, and just read the script as if it were a play and both with an education and Brooklyn I didn't really know much about Kerry Mulligan, and I didn't really know much about Saoirse. And they were unbelievable. It was like goosebumps. That was really enthralling. Uh, let's go on to uh, object number three, which is the book that uh, changed your life very much. Uh, tell us about this book. Well, it's Anne Tyler's Dinner at the Homesick Restaurant. I was a teacher. I was a teacher for a couple of years and I gave up teaching because I was so desperate to write and I knew I was too lazy to teach during the day and write in the evening. Unlike, for example, my friend Roddy Doyle, who didn't pack in teaching until he won the Booker Prize, I don't think. Amazing. Um, yeah, which was like his fourth novel and he'd already had the commitments made and, you know, he, he was proper, proper teacher, which I wasn't. I tried to write scripts and I didn't know what the hell I was doing. I didn't know anyone who worked in film. I didn't know what a script looked like. I was I was happy enough sort of writing things and sending them off and never hearing from anyone again. But obviously it, uh, there wasn't much of a future in it in that particular mode. I was literally just browsing the bookshop and I picked up dinner at the homesick restaurant because of the reviews it had had, which looked amazing, the blurbs on the front. And I started to read it in the bookshop and it just all clicked. I thought, oh, it's a voice. This has a voice. This has a conversational voice. And 
Aunt Tyler's a genius, but uh, it wasn't like I thought I could be Aunt Tyler. But I did think this is something that I could aspire towards. And immediately I started getting things published and selling stuff, just short stories, uh, bits and pieces here and there, essays. And then Fever Pitch came not too long after that. So um, she was the missing link for me. Writing, what uh, service does it provide for you? How does it affect you emotionally when you dive into other people's lives and create other people's lives? They're, They're very much with me. Um, I mean, Lucy and Joseph were very much with me for those two years. Um, And when I see people, I think, oh, is that Lucy or is that Joseph? They're a sort of uh, a permanent internal conversation that's going on. How hard is it to switch off from that? Uh, You can't, I don't think. You don't Um, want to or you can't? can't and I have to say the worst time is um, you know when you turn the light off that time of night is no different from the day there isn't a point I think when you where you finish work basically let's go on to your next object it's yeah. uh, it's a piece of paper yes why this what is on that piece of paper Nick uh, on that piece of paper is um, a picture of Tony Hancock and um, some dialogue from uh, the radio and their, and later TV programme, The Blood Donor, Galton and Simpson were the, t- the first two writing heroes I ever had without knowing that they were writers or heroes or anything, but I loved what they did. Um, I loved it when I was a kid. Um, I loved it as a teenager. It, they just stayed with me. And I think they're incredible people fantastic writers and underrated only because they worked in the popular medium of radio and television. I think um, if they'd written plays, then they'd have been Pinter or or whoever because they're so dark and some of the writing is eccentric and they're so sharp and they captured what it meant to be British, I think, at a certain point in our history you know, the 50s and 60s, the types of people that were around, the type of money that was around, which wasn't very much. I mean, Steptoe and Son is, you know, the most incredible, dark, Ionesco-esque black comedy, which happened to get, like, 25 million viewers on the BBC every week. I couldn't believe that I could just visit this website and buy something. Oh, that's the thing I should add. It has their signatures on it. I couldn't believe that I could pay 150 quid and get the signatures of two of the great, men of post-war English writing. <laughs> That's amazing. So uh, I'm presuming that you have that framed. Yeah, it's framed and, and on the wall at home. When you look at it, what does it say to you in terms of attitude towards your own work? Oh, I think it, it, it makes me want to uh, believe in my own work because I, I very much want to write in a popular medium, as in I want people to read the stuff. I don't... I don't mean I want to sell lots of books. I mean, I don't want to exclude anyone and I don't see why writing should exclude anybody. I'm, I'm, I was a comprehensive teacher and I have a comprehensive ideal of, of art, actually. And Galton and Simpson, they didn't compromise their art at all and they were so popular. 
they're like Dickens, and, and Dickens is another hero, someone who spoke to millions of people uh, across, well, certainly Britain and America, when he was alive, um, simply by talking in the voice that he had with, uh, about the things that he was interested in. Okay, there's a great scene in the book where you explore white liberal awkwardness on race in social situations by way of a school quiz night. Um, Nick, if you wouldn't mind, would you read that extract from the book for us now? Sure. When a neighbour volunteered her daughter, a 17-year-old who the boys knew and liked, she took Joseph to the fundraising quiz at the boys' school. They didn't arrive hand in hand, nor did they touch during the evening. In other words, they did nothing to differentiate themselves from any of the other couples there. And many of the parents knew Joseph from the butcher's shop anyway, so they presumed that Lucy had asked him to come along because he was good at quizzes. There were ten tables, with eight people on each. There was an Indian couple on the other side of the room and a Korean woman on the next table, but otherwise all the contestants were white. Do you have a specialist subject? said the woman who was sitting to his right. She seemed nice, blonde, smiley, very podgy. I'm Ellen, by the way. Oh, Joseph. Sport, I suppose. Ah, said Ellen, sport, of course. So there's a method in Lucy's madness. The woman seemed to watch the words as they came out of her mouth and they alarmed her. There's no madness, by the way, she said. I don't know why I put it that way. Why would it be mad? Joseph smiled. But usually when someone brings someone along, it's because they have a specialist subject. Well, let's say it's sport. OK, we will listen to you on all sports-related questions. Everyone, Joseph knows all the sports answers. There's a whole sports round, said Ellen's husband, who was also large. Round five. Joseph winced. There would be less pressure on him during round five if he simply announced at the end of round four that he and Lucy were having sex. They elected a team captain, Lucy, and drank wine out of paper cups and poured over the picture round. By the time the sheet made its way to Joseph, eight of the ten pictures of famous people had names beside them. We're just missing two, said Karen, the woman sitting on the other side of Lucy. We think the one with the hair might be Beyonce's sister, but we can't remember her name. Joseph looked at the pictures and recognised both of them. That's Solange Knowles. Solange, yes! And the other one is Alex Iwobi of Arsenal. There was a momentary silence. Everyone around the table, it seemed to Joseph, was trying to find an explanation for why the only black person in the team had recognised the only black people in the picture round. Well, two things I know nothing about, said Karen. Football and modern pop music. Is she pop? I don't even know that. These twin admissions of ignorance were seized upon gratefully. No, me neither. I know David Beckham and that's about it. And Adele. Is Dido still going? <laughs> Dido? That's going back a bit. And Drake, said Karen's husband quickly, conscious that they were digging themselves into yet another hole. Well, I wouldn't know what Drake looked like, said Ellen, who, it seemed, loved digging, would dig to Australia if she weren't stopped. As Joseph was handing the paper on to Lucy, he noticed that someone had written, question mark, question mark, Ryan Gosling, alongside a picture of the YouTuber Roman Atwood. Oh, that one's Roman Atwood, he said. Who's Roman Atwood? Well, he's a YouTuber. He does pranks. 
Ah, well, said Nick, that's another thing, YouTubers. Ha, exactly, said Ellen. Everyone laughed. A laugh crackled through with relief. Roman Atwood was white. Hurrah. They were equal opportunities dunces. These aren't my friends, said Lucy quietly when they were queuing for the Mexican buffet. Yeah, I know. So you mustn't think this is what every evening would be like. Well, I don't. Well, what, what do you think every evening would be like? He laughed. I, I'm serious. Well, how many of these evenings are there? I'll tell you one thing. I haven't got rich off babysitting for you. Well, I stopped going out when we started whatever you'd call it. Staying in. Maybe we shouldn't have come here. Why not? They're so nervous. It's like you're an unexploded bomb. Guacamole, no salsa, please. Well, white people are weird. It's like it's all they ever think about. Well, that's because they never think about it. Everything for me, please, said Joseph. He got nine out of ten on the sports round. And anyway, horse racing wasn't a sport. They were all pleased with him. But at the end of the evening, he lost his nerve. He said goodbye to them all, thanked them for the evening, and left without Lucy. He sat in McDonald's with a vanilla milkshake until she texted him to ask where he was. That was Just Like You, written by my guest Nick Hornby. It is available to buy and download on the 17th of September. You can pre-order it now. There's a link in the programme notes of this very episode. That's so well observed, Nick. Really? Oh, <laughs> God. I could feel them cringing. I can see their faces. I know what they look like and they sound like and how they feel and how they're trying to be so, so welcoming and liberal. They don't really know and they're panicking inside. And, oh, my gosh, we don't want to make sure. Well, he's black. Of course, he'll know they're black. But, yeah, oh God, yeah. God, we don't. And, oh, my God, we read The Guardian for crying out loud. But when you were writing sections such as that of the book, were you thinking to yourself, I really want to make some of my mates feel uncomfortable when they read this, if indeed they do? <laughs> no, I, d I don't think anything like that. I think I want to be as accurate and as painful and as you know funny as possible in a scene that seems real. If any mates are uncomfortable as a result of it, then so be it. I think you can tell you've done something right when they start asking you if you were there on that evening when this happened. And um, <laughs> wow, they're sufficiently um, paranoid about what writers do to think that I might have just lifted something and shoved it in a book, which I don't do. Nick, it's been a great pleasure chatting to you it. today. Thank I've, you I've, so I've, much. I've never had such a good time with an Arsenal fan, I have to say. So uh, uh, this is a rare, rare occurrence yeah. for me. <laughs> no, so, as I, you must have Tottenham fan friends because I've got loads of gooners who are really close mates of mine. You know, so. the worst one is my dentist. Oh, it's like, yeah, it's what? like Dustin Hoffman and Laurence Olivier in Marathon Man. <laughs> it, is, it really is. Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. It spurs mad. Wow, I, have I have to open my mouth and listen to him. <laughs> that Reminds Me by Derek Owusu. This is the story of Kay, from childhood to adulthood, told in fragments of memory. Placed in foster care until he was seven, he leaves the rural area of his upbringing to find family in the city of London. But what should have been the birth of a family turns into mental collapse. One evening, 
He decided the strain of longing for love outweighed the strain of longing for home. So in the morning, after watching her nervous dance with the escalator, he stood in the middle of the train doors, arms wide holding them open, waiting for her. Turning the corner, she saw her Samson and ran towards him. It became their right, until train doors became bolted doors and chubs in the door of a flat. The audiobook edition of That Reminds Me is available to download now.